0: Listeners and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-boss, McGill. A boss. That's the old meme. Uh, it's episode 147. I'm finishing up Operation Birth and Death in Act Five, uh, Worm Araboros. Of uh Coyote's Aegis, my ongoing fifth edition D campaign, which may be taking a little break in the future. Uh my brother's getting pretty busy, might not have time to play D D so much, so my D game might be going on a little hiatus. Which is bad news considering we're catching up with it every day.
1: I was gonna but, say, uh, oh my gosh, it's finally gonna happen. Tom is gonna run out of campaigns to compare.
0: Yeah, well, you know that I'm gonna be doing something else while I'm doing Dungeons and Dragons, oh, yeah. if that's this is what happens. I've got I got um my hack of Forged in the Dark, which I've now taken to calling Boots on the Ground. Uh, and I mean and, heck uh, if
1: all if push comes to shove. Uh, you and I are even generating content off the show with uh, an ongoing campaign of teeth.
0: Yes, exactly. Which, man, now we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. But uh, teeth just got released today uh, in a Kickstarter. You could the Kickstarter is to uh, find out how many copies of the print book they gotta make. Um, but and, and I got a Dangus. My Dangus prepaid credit card not working for it. So I I was going to just get it easy-like, but now it's Dangus not letting me. But point is, teeth is out. You can get it. You can go pay on the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter, uh, in Canadian dollars, it was $8,313 or something was the target. It met that target in 64 minutes yeah. of its going up. And has so far raised over $20,000. Oh, magnificent. So teeth is blowing up. Everyone's loving it. You got quotes on the Kickstarter there from Kieran Gillen, the creator of Die, uh, from Tom Francis, the creator of Heat Signature, Gunpoint, and the forthcoming Tactical Breach Wizards. Um, you know, friends Friends of Marsh, but uh, all uh, exciting folks, people, people who worked on Bioshock 2, uh drop in box quotes on that one. It's gone gold, as they say. I saw a thing the other day. It said Diablo four gone gold. How 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 far we've come that that can happen. I can be barely interested. <laughs> um you know my my hotmail account when I was a kid was Diablo guy eighty nine. I had
1: no idea, Tom. That's very funny.
0: I was so into Diablo at the time.
1: Diablo um, guy. and Diablo guys uh, zero through eighty eight were taken.
0: Well, it's uh, year I was born, eighty nine. Oh, there we go. But uh, yeah, so so we were talking about teeth. I was talking about boots on the ground. Um, yeah, there's always going to be something to talk about, some some uh, nonsense or whatnot. I could even talk about our little sci-fi project, which I'm hoping to do another session of uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have some D&D yet, let me tell you. Um, so there's all that. Meanwhile, you are covering...
1: I am continuing to cover low life, and uh, I mean, I feel like I say this kind of thing all the time on my segment, uh, where I'm like, I think this will be the end of it, but you know, never say never, Uh, it's entirely possible that we will continue talking about low life, but uh, the reason I say I think this might be the end of it is, uh, I'm going to dive into the the campaign that is included with the Savage Worlds Low Lowlife sourcebook, and uh, it's a doozy. There are, there are a bunch of adventures. Um, I'm not going to go through the entire thing. I'm mostly just going to cover the first three adventures and give it sort of an overview. I also don't want to, like, it's spoil the product, right?
0: It, it's something I'll shout out, actually. Uh, a similarity between Lowlife and Teeth is that perhaps more so in Teeth than in Lowlife, but in Teeth um the vast majority of the book is the world book is like like there is the, it's divided into uh the world book the rule book and then i think it's the appendices beyond that or at least that was the beta you know um but the world book is like 100 pages and the rule book is uh well it's probably not that that much shorter but point is um, the world book uh makes up like the meat of it, you know and and that makes sense because it's it's not like they had to reinvent Forged in the dark they just had to hack it, you know
1: yeah exactly but, uh,
0: and, and same thing with low life really but it it does say something about that. I think it's something about that style of making a, a game, and it's something i uh comparison I made earlier where it's like there's the type of game where you really have to get into the crunch or there's the type of game where the crunch is kind of done for you. And so you really have to be serving up that flavor.
1: Yeah. Um, And this is what I was talking about on our last show too, where I was saying like the thing about Savage Worlds low life is that it is so dense in its lore that I feel like in order to deliver a really good game, you should be very well versed in it uh, to the point where of course the best the best boss I have seen among all the videos I watched people playing it is the man himself, Andy Hop. But uh, some, I'll touch upon that even more as I go over this campaign because thankfully, even if you are not completely immersed in the lore, this campaign makes it really easy to dive in and it's got all that delightful lowlife flavor right there for you. Uh, I was really impressed by how that goes. But I got some other sort of tangential rpg related topics to cover too so expect a little bit of everything
0: yeah they i think teeth and Low Life are both games that uh really go hard on the sort of like campaign the the out of the box campaign play uh so because that's that's the areas where they get they know they gotta shine in all their grimy goodness that grime's gotta shine shiny grime Shiny grime. Meanwhile, uh, I'm picking up uh, where I left off. So I don't know. Do we want to jump right into that? Or do you have anything to cover beforehand?
1: No, let's do it. Let's get into Coyote's Ages.
0: All right. So I pick up uh, our session with the following. I say, the three of you are lying in watch, having moved to position adjacent the hedged courtyard behind the Lord's Tower in the courtyard, Vicky lies on her side with her hands clutching at the dagger in her bloody chest while her brother Gar stands over her. Behind you, the muffled din of chaos from the tower can still be heard. And so, at this point, I had them roll initiative. Hex got 14, Connor got 13, uh, Jen got 10. And Hex had the first move, but I told them, like... I- it's an option to just keep spying on them and alex was like oh definitely we'll like spy on them if we haven't been seen and uh he said that connor would prepare to cast calm emotions quote if shit goes tits up um but then realized he said (laughs) that's kind of a loose trigger and i was like yeah can you define tu a bit better um because like
1: i'm not entirely sure i like the implication of of well shitty tits
0: I I am just thinking like it's the cl- it's a classic d d thing of like what is the trigger for your readied action and is it specific enough if but, something like, goes bad <laughs> yeah if things go wrong can you be more specific um so he d- he was more specific he said uh if somebody acts in a hostile manner And so I said, "Okay." so we'll we'll say if someone other than the party attempts to make an attack or cast a spell, that's when it will go off. And so Gar hisses a word in a strange tongue and Vicky slowly begins to rise. Gar embraces Vicky and Vicky pulls the dagger from her bloody torso, wincing. She whispers something to Gar and uh, Chantel says shit is necromancy. And uh, Alex, more correctly, said some kind of fake-your-own-death thing. Highfalutin' politics. And uh, I gave Gent the chance to act if they wanted, or they could just, you know, stay and wait, keep spying. Uh, they asked if they recognized the language, and I had them roll Arcana. And even with their 17, I said, no, they don't. But since they'd studied some languages, that at least told them that, obviously, this was something out of the ordinary. So... Everybody decided to, uh, you know, lie in wait, remain seeing what was uh, going on. Um, Gent tried to focus on their surroundings so no one snuck up on them. And I said that it was noisy behind them, but nobody's closing the distance between the tower and the courtyard yet. And uh, it came back around to Hex and Connor's turn. And uh, Hex keeps low and quiet. Uh, Alex said that Connor's spell fizzles, wasting a spell slot. And I was like, I didn't realize he had to cast to prepare it. Like, also, he wouldn't, he couldn't say the command word in stealth because it has a verbal component. And so, logically, if he, if he, like, if he didn't cast anything because nothing tre- tre- triggered the radi- ready action, I figured he didn't lose the spell slot. I don't know if that's a and technicality that hmm. like comes up at all. But my my ruling is, you ready a spell. If it doesn't go off, you didn't cast it. You don't use the spell slot. What do you think, McGill?
1: that is a A tricky one.
0: A strange bit of minutiae, eh?
1: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really strange one. So your readied action is a spell. And, oh, okay. So, so if I got this right, uh, he's readied a spell and he's done that. He's going to cast it as a readied action but the trigger for the ready to action doesn't go off. Right. That's the yeah. situation we're dealing with. Yeah. In that case, I would say, no, he doesn't use the spell slot.
0: I agree. That's, that was my rolling really too. And it's funny. Maybe, because maybe you, like, though, maybe unless like... it's
1: like a, a ritual that he has to cast and then the trigger for the ritual to be complete is the thing. I feel like there yeah, are a lot maybe. of like specific, you know, context sensitive situations, but if it's just like, if that guy comes towards me, I'm going to cast a fireball and then the guy doesn't go towards him, I wouldn't say he loses the spell, no.
0: I do think it's funny though that like Alex volunteered that the spell fizzles wasting a spell slot, and I was like, no, it doesn't. It's a very uh very very uh self sabotaging uh play right there.
1: I mean, uh, I think maybe just in the in the name of, of trying to be fair.
0: Yeah. Being uh you know, being uh, transparent about your uh, how you're running things. I don't know. So, um, uh, so also, I specified that while Gent uh, couldn't recognize the language that Gar had hissed, I uh, did say that what Vicky whispered to Gar in return, uh, they could roll perception with hearing and try and determine. And, uh, so, Sean, uh, Gent rolled another 17, Hex got an 8, and Connor got a 10. And, uh, I said, none of you get more than whispers. Gent thinks she might be speaking in the heavily accented common of the area, though. It's tough to tell. Then, Gar tears at his flesh and clothing, rending them both away in bloody, tattered scraps until a fiendish creature stands before them, complete with leathery wings, claws, horns, and a tail. And then in brackets, I was like, that came out of nowhere. (laughs) Uh, Chantel was like, I think we book it. Uh, Alex asked if Vicky reacted, and I said... uh, not really. She maybe takes a step step back and holds the dagger to her bloody chest, but she's not acting like this is shocking or anything. And I made everybody roll a uh, Wisdom save with advantage. This was uh, this was for uh, resisting in, in, abyssal madness from wit- witnessing this horrible sight. Um, they all passed. Uh, I said, Connor can practically see the supernatural insanity radiating from this creature as it performs this perverse act of self-destruction. He mutters a prayer to Paylor, and you all feel disturb- disturbed by the sight, but nothing more. So it comes back around to Jen's turn, and uh, Chantel was very honest at this point. She was like, uh, I have no idea what to do. Our job was recon, and we did it. Jet is going to turn around and start scooting away. And I was like, yeah, I think the exit plan before coming across this was to have Connor cast Ethereal. And then uh, you were supposed to be at the far end of the corner, the far corner of the courtyard. But um, at this point, the group was like, "Nah, I feel like here is good. And uh, (laughs) so Gent just like whispers like we should go. And then it's Hex's turn and then Connor's. So Hex just like, they just del- delay their turns and uh, prepare to move once they get ghostly. Connor casts Ghostly Scoot, aka Etherealness, at ninth level. And.
1: Uh, well, now that's what I'm going to call it forever Ghostly yeah. Scoot.
0: I mean, uh, yeah, because they were saying uh, Jen said uh, Jen is going to turn around and start scooting away. And then uh, Hex will similarly delay his turn to, to scoot once ghostly. Co- Connor casts ghostly scoot at ninth level. Um, so uh, once they're all ethereal, Hex points up and makes binocular motions with his hands. And, uh, but then he's like, wait, we can talk, right? So he says, let's get out of arm's reach and just see how this plays out. And they fly up into the sky as ghosts. So they they head up into the sky and continue observing from above. And when they look back down at the scene, something truly bizarre happens. Still having apparently not noticed them, the creature that was Gar takes a step and enters the ethereal plane. So everybody has to roll stealth, but there's no disadvantage from armor. But this is the thing, is that uh, Gar here, he's an incubus, I'm pretty sure, and a 5e succubus or incubus uh has one of their abilities straight up is uh etherealness the fiend magically enters the ethereal plane from the material plane uh, or vice versa see the thing is this whole uh ruse this thing where they pretend to assassinate vicky and it turns out that gar and vicky were actually uh, uh uh demons you know infiltrating the royal court of uh the mantle uh, Their plan to escape was also to use etherealness because they naturally have it to just escape. (laughs) It's complete coincidence that the spell that Alex has been flexing with also happens to be the spell that the monster is using.
1: They can ghostly scoot too.
0: Not something that I planned at all. So everyone rolls pretty good stealth. Uh, we got a 26 from Gent, a 21 from Hex, and a 17 from Connor. So Gent hides behind Connor and Hex in midair, and the Fiend turns its head as if to casually survey the area. Upon spotting them, so apparently it wasn't good enough, the Fiend pauses and then begins cackling maniacally. It flies directly upwards towards their group in the air, coming within striking distance of all of them, its, twi- its face a twisted grin of malice and insanity. We went to Gent's turn next. Uh, they had sneak attack and the advantage to attack from being hidden behind their allies as Gar had not spotted them. But they could have also chosen to flee. And uh, so they, they're like, I think we have to fight at this point. So they weren't limited in any We established they weren't limited in any way because basically both sides are ghosts. And uh, they pull out their sunblade and they get a nat 20 oh not 20 not 20 crit mix 2022 i'm pretty sure i don't know what year it was it was probably actually like 2020 or something actually like near yeah it was 2020 this was years ago uh but yeah point is she rolls up she does all her math she rolls up all her dice here 66 sneak attack plus 8 for the 2d10 plus seven geez so 81 damage total Uh, and i'm like the the grin leaves his face is replaced with genuine shock and horror well keep in mind it was a crit on a like a level like a full level like like 10d6 sneak attack with the sunblade which is 2d10 plus seven
1: Oh, make no mistake. I mean, like, yeah, th- this is this is what a, a character of that power should be doing. I just say, like, ah, hacks OP, because it's like, man, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I'm like, the grin leaves his face, is replaced by genuine shock and horror. Shock because he didn't know you were there, and horror because you just cleaved off one of the arms of his true form. Um, at that point, uh, with a Blade of Sunlight, and uh at that point, Gent uses their movement to literally go to ground, head down to the ground, and use their bonus action to hide. And uh, so they manage to slip out of their grasp. They try, like they get the opportunity attack. Gar swipes at them furiously with his remaining hand of claws, but it tears at air as Gent is already gone. They, uh, he tries to keep his eyes on them but uh, soon finds himself preoccupied with his more immediate opponents and his grievous wound. Then, everybody rolls Perception with advantage. Meanwhile, in the garden, Vicky has apparently returned to feigning death. Four humans arrive on the scene. Three of them appear to be guards like they saw earlier, but one appears to be a spellcaster. They wear a cloak and a handkerchief covering their face. They're evidently protected by mage armor as well as being armed with a collection of daggers strapped to their person. As the security forces approach, you're aware that more are incoming behind these. It's just a matter of how soon. And then we go to Hex's turn. Hex enters a rage, and the ghostly air is filled with the grim-faced warriors of Hex's tribe. And I'm like, fuck yeah. (laughs) I I was feeling this. A war chant goes up as he summons the ghosts of his fallen tribe people. Tribes people. Um... Hex pulls out his laser pistol, the Apollo, and uh, takes three shots. And uh, or or no, he changed his mind. He was gonna pull out his laser pistol and shoot the guy three times. But then he was like, "No, my barbarian thing needs to be a me- melee attack. So instead, I'm gonna bite this demon three times recklessly." Um, so he starts biting this demon and, uh, he says, what is a ghost demon of insanity taste like? And I'm like, spicy, a bit unpleasant. Uh, he, uh, because of the ghost that he summoned, that is a benefit of Hex's tribal rage. Um, the, uh, demon has, at this point would have disadvantage on any attack rolls that aren't against Hex until the end of Hex's next turn. Um, but against him has advantage because it's reckless attacks, but he's recklessly biting, he's biting, biting. I'm like, you're getting some good bites in face, torso, right leg. I think around this time I had access to that great, uh, target, like, uh, like, you just uh, it would generate like a yeah we, we different covered that on started. the show yeah but now it's like you have a, you have to have an account on the site to use it and that's that defeats the whole purpose is uh, I need to have it quickly accessible so I can just quickly jump on in the tab there and whatnot I can't be logging into the account so now I just roll a d six you know a d uh, a one is a left leg. A two is a right leg. A three is a right, is a left arm. A four is a right arm. Five is a torso. Six is a head. I even use that for teeth. Um, also, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Um, but Hexaquila is like nine out of ten bites, choice stuff. And I'm like, it's kind of like bitter, spoiled, spicy meat. And then Connor. Stares the demon coldly in the eye, and I specified uh, uncooked, of course. And Connor casts uh, Connor casts divine word, um, speaking the forgotten tongue of paleor from the dawn of creation. Connor banishes the creature to oblivion, particle by particle, until it is annihilated. Hex looks disappointed. The tribal warriors disperse uh more guards are arriving in the garden now it seems as good a time as any to proceed with the escape plan connor shouts i'm out of spells we gotta go and zips off uh jen and hex follow suit and uh, they escape the city undetected as ghosts eventually it becomes necessary to return to the boundaries of the material plane at which point they are already deep in the forest of agaloc the journey back to the MPOC takes a little less than two days, having cut down on some of the distance by flying through the forest as ghosts from the city. And Jenk goes, Ooh. And upon their their return to Omega Base, they are expected to report to sue the MPOC offices. So they head there, and uh, Hex awkwardly looks down at his notes, trying to get his story straight. Uh, Jen volunteers to engage in a C-3PO-style retelling of every detailed event. And uh, I said, When they arrive, most of the staff for the offices are not present. A few are, including Sue, who is working on notes alone at a desk. Upon seeing the obvious profile of your party enter the offices, she rushes over to hear the debriefing. Using the intel they've gathered, she immediately begins further constructing the schedule up on the wall to represent the coming changes for Lord Dio's planned tour. And uh, I gave them the opportunity to highlight or leave out anything major. And uh, Hex suggested that Dexter was very trusting and possibly an easy mark for future operatives. And she made a note of Dexter's profile. And uh, Hex Hex said, I'm probably going to stress the thing with the demon and the assassination and whatnot. So Sue was concerned that these final events might affect the schedule in unforeseen ways, but shook her head. It's late. We'll worry about these things tomorrow. In the meantime, you can report to the Armory for your op bonus. Also, she goes to her desk and picks up a small black tube, which you realize when she shows it to you as a silencer. I've been doing some extracurricular study on silencers just to get a working understanding of them. Seems like they'll be a crucial part of future MPOC ops. Probably are already are for a lot of agents. Anyway, she hands the silencer to Hex. Now that I'm done my study, it's not much more use than a paperweight, so I figure you could put it to better use. And the party gets a free silencer. And uh, Chantel made a little joke about, too bad it wasn't a silencer for those who are stealth deficient. <laughs> yeah, a little jab at Connor.
1: It's so funny, cool. you know, like your your characters in this game are so uh like super powered they're incredibly powerful characters uh it's just funny to me having them get like a silencer at this point. It almost feels like I don't know man given given that uh they just dealt like eighty plus points of sneak damage. does a silencer make a big difference?
0: it is it's so part of it is it is a side effect of my uh thing where I take inspiration from uh, fiasco playsets and so the rewards for the side quests are based on like the items in fiasco playsets but also i do like the way that it has played out where it's like not every quest reward is going to be something that's that that's that terribly useful to you you know not every quest giver is like especially when they're so high level, like the fact is, Hex like taught Sue gunsmithing, so it doesn't make sense for Sue to then like like I guess it could be a cool thing of like Sue, you know, the student has surpassed the master, but at that point, at this point, that simply hasn't happened, and so um, I like the whole thing of like sometimes the people who are quest givers like they give you the best that they got, which just isn't that much at the level that you're at really sort of highlights the how far they've come um
1: that is that uh, is sort of video gamey you know it's it's like an rpg where you grind and you grind and you get the the awesome secret items and you level up and craft all this stuff for your own gear and then you complete you finally get around to completing the next story mission and it's like and you get a level one sword (laughs)
0: i mean the thing is if it's on level with you it should be giving a reward that is like appropriate to your level but um i like this kind of flavor that this game has where it's like the the way that i ran this campaign like the reward was not always gonna be something that is like hyper useful and and like At this point, if I was giving them something hyper-useful, like, it would just be insane. It's like, yeah, now you get a a plus-three axe, and now you get a helm of, of doom, and you get, like, it would just, like, it would be even more to the point of, like, their bag of tricks is just overstuffed, you know? Right. Um. So I also, uh, just for Chantel's benefit, I think, I threw in some background info. Uh, Hex taught Sue some gunsmithing back in the first act of the campaign. Uh, Sue also taught the uh, group how to fly aircraft, as her dad is the main aviation expert in her dad, Professor Nesne and Rob Fling. They are both dwarves. And then I included uh, images of them sue courtesy of waifu labs and then a picture of uh, professor Nesne and rob fling i've actually it's so common as like a, an image of like a gnome or dwarf tinkerer on google image search that i've even seen somebody else uh use this image for their character in another game i was playing in um i'll include those for the show notes and uh so then they head on down to the armory uh, they get their op bonus of 350 gold and Jett has an opportunity to get their uh reading glasses looked at and uh they're like oh they're not just reading glasses nice and uh they uh decide they they only have one of the they only have one of those disguise scrolls remain, remaining the like uh beefed up some uh disguise scrolls that they got uh, during the mission. But. Uh, uh, Hex uh, suggests. Handing those over to the armory. And Gent is like nope. I got one left and I'm going to save it. For some good shenanigans. Um, uh, but then actually. No never mind. I established that they were there for 30 hours. And so they basically ended up using all of them. And so Gent used hers already. Uh, used theirs already um uh yeah and i was like i mean we could say that there was a period there where they were undisguised before the party but it seemed like such a big risk so they were like yeah i'd say we use them so they got 350 gold each as the uh op bonus and uh, <laughs> uh alex had a moment of like oh my god we never took the do not dis- disturb sign off the root off our room's door they're never gonna send the cleaning lady." How mysterious that nobody has been in or out of that room since the assassination. <laughs> oh well. And uh, Alex said, Hex's bedtub water is going to stink.
1: Bedtub. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, exactly. So, Gent had the brass reading glasses with smoky lenses inspected. Upon looking at them and consulting some large tomes in the armory, Dax tries them on and looks through some books. Finally, he removes them, turns them back to you, and informs Gent that they are abyssal reading glasses. The smoky lenses are not great for reading in general, but these glasses allow the wearer to read abyssal regardless of proficiency. These were on the corpse of the MPOC agent they found in the sewer. And, uh, also, while they're at the armory, Dax brings up a side matter, explains that an agent brought in a pretty nasty looking spear they found in the forest, a plus two vicious spear, and Dax asked if anybody wanted it, as he will otherwise be adding it to the armory's collection. And, uh, (laughs) uh, Hex and Connor passed as well, it was silver, uh, actually no, Connor did grab it. Connor grabbed the Silver Plus 2 Vicious spear and uh turned in his Plus 2 Vicious club. And uh then they all got 1200 XP. Uh so they're at 261,625 XP and uh man, just uh just rolling in it.
1: And then they, fact, they went up. And then they got then a month of downtime to, and competed in another reality game show.
0: No, nah, they uh, they actually they beefed it up to two sixty one six seven five after like some extra bonuses. Um, Connor switched back to his usual spell list, uh, and. Uh, jent went around the base uh wandering around seeing if they could find secret abyssal messages and i'm like i feel like jent is gonna fall asleep doing this and they're like because for some reason i thought it would be like invisible ink when you described it and i'm like man going around doing the bit from they live with the sunglasses and i even included a little gif of uh old rowdy roddy piper putting those sunglasses on and seeing the obey message on the sign classic um i asked what is hex cook up the party get ready for the to take on the next day and uh hex said big old pot of chicken noodle soup and then showed a picture of one he was cooking in real life yum yum, yum yum yum
1: well share with the class
0: uh oh yeah i guess uh,
1: so <laughs> come on i want to see the soup
0: oh i see this soup for the supplemental material hey of this it soup. looks
1: like some pretty good soup
0: Yeah, I mean, my brother's a cook, so... I'd eat it. Hopefully he makes a decent soup. Um, Gent asked if it was really chicken, and uh, Hex was like, can I get chicken here, or is it Deathland Vulture Surprise again? And Gent said, Gent will politely pass on eating a bird. Uh, Oh, I will also prepare some grits for Gent. I was like, nice. So they were summoned to the briefing room not long after breakfast... They found Coyote apparently busy in the process of laying out a number of documents and going over them with the map of Agaloc posted on the wall behind him as always. A number of markers in the map denoted key sites, including the Mantle and Ashgreen Outpost. When they entered... He cracked a weak smile and immediately passed out relatively thin de- dossiers labeled Operation Winter. Inside the dossiers contained a general map of Egglock, a map of the developing Empok and Dralic army outposts arranged along the northern border of the forest, and two profiles—one for a dwarf named Rod and one for an orc. Na- one for the orc agent Tusk, and we know Tusk from Tusk and Arthur, the two uh, like Empok detectives. That uh, featured in the little spinoff that I ran uh, way, way back in the days of MPOC's finest when I ran a little spinoff for my friends Spencer and Daniel. Remember that? I sure do. So I had Hex and Connor roll insight. This is something is uh, when you have uh, characters, do you ever have your uh, players roll to see if they remember a critical detail?
1: um you know i would do that if it was something from like way back that's that's another sort of context sensitive one if it's like something from last adventure i probably wouldn't make them roll i'd just be like if you can't remember you can't remember but if it was like if there had been a big break between between adventures you know months and months or if it was something that happened like way earlier in the campaign then uh then I might just make them roll for it.
0: And what would you make them roll? That's my follow-up question.
1: Hmm. Maybe just like a straight-up wisdom check.
0: So my role has been I get them to roll insight, and the example here is I said that uh, one of the profiles they get is for a dwarf named Rod. Um, they have met Rod uh, back in Act 1 of Coyote's Ages on the Deathlands tour. Uh, or actually it would have been act tour uh, act two. But the point is like to what you were saying in terms of context, this is um, like a a couple acts later, at least a few acts later. Um, But uh, basically I'm just having them roll insight to see if the characters remember this guy Rod from back when they were on the trail, because that was a while ago and they met a lot of people. But Hex rolls a 20, Connor gets a 15, and so I'm like, you you would both remember remember Rod. He was a dwarven smith who fought in the Battle of Butchertown against the Bloody Panda Bugbears when you were in the caravan. It seems he has since taken on with the Dralik army. And uh, uh, Coyote goes on to explain, basically there's not much of an op laid out here. I just needed to codename it so we have a record of your being dispatched. I have a couple mysteries that need to be checked out. You guys are on the case. And Gent gives a little salute. Firstly, and perhaps most pressingly, we have an urgent request for your team, specifically from Rod, who is stationed at a supply dump on the Armory's developing perimeter along the forest's northern edge. So your first primary objective is checking that out. But in the meantime... Our agent, Tusk, has also sent word of a puzzling situation he could use the help of other agents with. Tusk is more of a heavy hitter than a head scratcher if you catch my drift. He's currently uh, located at a prison camp we set up on the Deathlands border for any remaining Nightside Eclipse captives we have or take at this stage. It's on your way to the supply dump, so I advise you check in with him on your way to see Rod. And I'll include little pictures for the supplemental materials, what I use for Rod uh, the f- dwarven Smith turned a uh, Dralic military and Tusk, the half-orc private eye, uh, who is a city barbarian that's, nice. uh, known for his signature sledgehammer. I like that. Um, uh, Tusk Profile notes him as typically being partnered with Agent Arthur, uh, who, you know, who you worked with in the first Egg Lock-Op, and as I mentioned, we know from before. It also notes that he is known to be a significant force when armed with a sledgehammer. Uh, Rod and uh, Hex asked, what exactly is pressing about Rod's request? And uh, Coyote said, Rod just said your team's presence, your team specifically, was urgently required at the supply dump. And Hex said, understood. Any further questions? They're like, nope. I don't expect either of these concerns to take too much of your time, but do bear in mind that your recently collected intel suggests we need to be ready to move on the mantle again in about a week. And if that's everything, I asked if uh, the party goes to the armory first or did they head out? What's the plan? And Hex is still good on ammo and stuff, and so with Connor. I said, uh, keep in mind... They have multiple means of transport uh, transportation now: bike, jeep, jetpack, aircraft, and portal station, etc. And uh, so they said, "All right, you want to take the jet bike, and Hex and Connor will go in the jeep." And uh, so they rolled out, cruising the acrid plains, and that's where we broke.
1: Hell yeah! That was great.
0: I actually specified, uh, we'll break here as I'm pretty tired. My sleep's been a little messed up by my new obsession with the historical war game Black Powder. Oh my god! So this is when I got crazy into, uh, you know, Black Powder and uh, historical Matrix War Games. It's when I got Tabletop Simulator. And uh, also, uh, Alex closed with Killer Sesh Bray, Ghost Wars in the Demon Skies. Hell yeah.
1: Yeah, that was a good one. That was really cool. Finish the op. Roll out. I like, uh, you almost gave them like an Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade final shot where they're just, they're rolling out to their next thing and that's where it ends.
0: Across the acrid plains of the Deathlands. Yeah, Uh, I dig it. A a motorcycle and a jeep rolling through Mordor and to the next stop. And so this one, uh, Operation Birth and Death was, uh, Hillsfar Reclaimed, I believe it's DDEX uh, 312. Let me make sure that. Yeah, Hillsfar Reclaimed. And the next one, DDEX 313. It's one we've done before, McGill. It's writhing in the dark.
1: Right on. We're going back to the brain bucket.
0: Yeah, man. So they're cruising across Mordor heading for uh, what they're going to find out is just a map that's a big old bunch of skulls. Just uh, two kick-ass modules in a row, really.
1: Sure sounds like it. I should uh, I should run the other one.
0: Uh, yeah, Hillsfire Reclaimed. You just need to set up that uh, you know... The thing is that it, it also, it is like The prequel adventure, like, it is a module that then, I think the module after Writhing in the Dark um, follows up on, like, the intel that they get. Like, there's the thing about getting the schedule, and then uh, uh, in the next one, it's, like, about the assassination, basically. <laughs> Not me.
1: so first up i'm going to demonstrate exactly what i was talking about when it comes to the danger of lowlife, uh, and how i could just be here all day talking about the different aspects of lowlife because it is just such a rich piece of work this source book um, i was i was getting my notes together to tell you about this big campaign that's in it. And I made the mistake of scrolling one page back from the campaign and found myself in the bestiary of Oyth with all of the monsters of lowlife. And this is another one where, man, these are all so damn good. Listen to some of these names. Uh, the esophagator, uh, Hair Bears. Mutant Landfish puddles of yeah i've y- seen
0: the hair bears they're pretty cute yeah
1: pu- puddle of yuck cuchacho scary ass mothers schnoobles they're slogs man pygmy slogs giant slogs sand slogs the sp-
0: well, slogs are rideable because you can get a slog saddle
1: that's right they're oily boids and uh and dweebs and bruisers and badasses and cheese leeches uh uh, can can can'tan- contaminants animant, contaminants they're animated c- contaminations they're the elemental spirits of filth and disease and corruption um borlos it's really funny uh the first page of the bestiary before all the descriptions is a random encounter table what you might encounter in different parts of mother oith And uh, on that page, there is this illustration of a really wild looking creature, man. This thing is just so bizarre. It's got like eyeballs in its nostrils and its arms uh, are like leeches with big toothy mouths on the end. And I was like, what the heck? is?"
0: Maybe that's a badass mother.
1: Well, no. See, I was like, what the heck is that? And then I look and in tiny text at the bottom of the illustration, it says that's a Borlo. (laughs) So I was like, oh, "Oh, yeah, there it is. That's a Borlo. (laughs) I like that they even answered it. Um, so, uh, I could spend all this time on the bestiary. I'm sure I could spend some time on magic. We didn't even touch on magic, but, uh, before I get to my main topic, why don't we, well, oh, yeah,
0: scary ass mothers, scary ass mothers. They like, it doesn't exactly describe them, but they sound very scary. I think that there, there's like a big spiky cat thing, uh, on the big page sort of 85 like yeah. page. And I think that that might be a scary ass mother, but I don't know.
1: Man, there's yeah, it, it's so good, so good. Uh, so before are hair
0: bears the ones that are the little butts. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like I a it's like
1: a a face on a butt, and then it has a ring of hair like a beard, and just two stumpy legs. Hair bears, man, so good. Um... Before we get to my main topic, though, because I, st- I feel like I'd
0: mostly in in Clorbs Wang, though, I'd mostly be, mostly be running into evil hork savages.
1: Well, let's roll a random encounter from uh, from one of these places. I just did. Yeah. Oh, the the hork, evil hork savages. Not bad.
0: Two d twelve evil hork savages in Klorb's Wang.
1: Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll one. Uh, what would I encounter? in the quarry of the danged i'm gonna encounter 3d4 mucosite miners of the danged cool all
0: right Hmm. i guess they mine mucus can never be sure with this game
1: yeah uh, something i noted while i was watching that uh like that recording of an actual game being, uh, overseen by Andy Hop was, uh, he was like, you gotta meet a, a, a freeble Zazzle master named Toenail. And I was like, I like that Toenail, the only discernible word in there is the guy's name. It's not even descriptive of anything about him. <laughs> it's just his name. Um, but
0: Oh man, did you highlight the fact that there's a monster in here named a milf?
1: <laughs> I didn't. I, I should have mentioned the milf. Shape-changing monsters that lure beings. So They're it's kind of like succubi.
0: Yeah, it says it's got a picture of a gross, like, melty-looking uh, thing with a really long tongue. It says a milf disguised it's as a really, really sexy, sexy orc. Hork.
1: <laughs> Mutant landfish fish are the staple of the Glohiowan diet. Glohiowans are also the staple of the mutant landfish diet. The details on this—it it just goes so deep. Um, but I'm here to talk about the built-in campaign that begins on uh, page 86. Uh, well, that's the the sort of overview of it, uh, and uh, as well the random adventure generator that we played around with. And then on 87 is the beginning of the the campaign. Um, so the let me let me just read out. Uh, oh no, there's there's too much of it for me to read out. I'll summarize it. The gist of the thing, a quick a quick briefing, an overview of the backstory.
0: I just have a correction because I realized there's a there's like a a little detail on the opposite page of the splash page that explains that the scary ass mother is actually the long limb thing down at the bottom.
1: Oh. Oh, weird. I mean, I guess it is pretty scary-ass.
0: Yeah. The thing that I thought it was was actually a... a A schnubel.
1: So the campaign, uh, which you can chop up into individual adventures, uh, is called Savage Tales, a series of interrelated brief adventures for you to run. Um... Savage Tales with the Time of the Flush crying Oyth next to them, which is like a little icon. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry, I, should, I don't need to read that part. That's just describing like the uh, the iconography of the chapter. But basically this campaign is uh, sort of like a, a Da Vinci Code or Indiana Jones-esque uh, globe-hopping adventure for your players where they are seeking out... Uh, a a mythical place. It's sort of like an like a, an El Dorado kind of uh, legendary land on Mother Earth called the Primordial Soup Kitchen, which is where, of course, it all began. A place of of great importance. Speculation Why? abounds as to what it actually no is. Why Crawley
0: would go there?
1: Exactly to prove uh, the Croach supremacy. But uh, many groups and factions. Uh, speculate upon the significance of the Primordial Soup Kitchen, and this campaign will take you there. Your players being pursued, of course, by multiple factions, such as the Jemima's Witnesses, who oppose the Humanitarian Church's efforts to uh, to bring the human race back to Oith. Uh All these different people want the Primordial Soup Kitchen, and your party, your heap will be the ones to find it. Uh, I guess there's like a bit of Borderlands in that too, actually, now that I think about it. It's got a real sort of Borderlands zest to it. Um, And like I said, I'm not going to go over the entire campaign. There's too much of it, and I don't want to spoil this whole thing. uh, But I'll talk about the first few adventures. uh, And of course, it's all going to start with getting the party together. And before I even talk about that, Tom wanted to talk to you about getting the party together. So, in Savage Tales, the party is thrown into the adventure together because they are all attending a puppet show and then something goes down. Stuff falls into their lap and the plot kicks off. They're all sort of thrust into the action together just by happenstance. They were all in the same place at the same time. And I wanted to ask you, like, how do you do you vary up how your your parties get together do you like how do you tend to handle it because as i've gotten older i often just put it in my players control and i say we're gonna say you all know each other why don't you guys sort of figure out how you know each other in advance of the game maybe that's me being lazy as a dm but uh once in a while I, i i i do one of the the typical things but i'd love to hear what you do
0: um, I mean, so in the first MPOC game, in MPOC's finest, I had them all in like different places, have their own sort of vignettes that all led together into them being brought to the Pandemonic Goblin Archive, where they were then uh brought into the MPOC. and. All right, right. Mission. I
1: remember that now. Now that you mention it.
0: But after since then every game that I've run basically has started with the players being assembled for like their first for their like training or something like they all have their individual backgrounds but then they are brought together the for their call first to meeting of the team yeah like but it is always like a guided thing where they are brought together by some sort of handler and that I think the thing is like I think that's also true of teeth even though I just straight up used the intro that's provided in teeth. Um, I think that like generally every game that I've run since Mpox finest has followed that thing I guess uh, also except for um, the spin-off with Tusk and Arthur which was, had them as like private eyes as a as a private eye duo, That also, like, that was sort of their whole adventure was basically the thing of them being eventually drawn into the Pandemonic Garblin Archive and uh, joining the MPOC. But yeah, since those early days, I have always gone with the, like, assembly, uh, assembly and briefing and whatnot. Yeah, bringing the team together, that sort of thing
1: yeah and uh just just pondering this this thought you know it's like how do i tend to get my my parties together and such um i did some some just sort of like broad research uh, into how like different methods of getting your party together and here are a few that i found and uh, they already they sort of touch upon what we're talking about. So because they are called upon to do it, you know, the queen or the emperor calls upon them, uh, or the empok calls upon them. In the Forgotten Realms campaign, uh, I had that I'm running. I had my players all be summoned by the local duke because he. Uh, the Duke thought that there was like an assassin in his midst among his men. So he wanted some outside heroes who are impartial to help protect him against, you know, the people who might be trying to kill him from within his own court. Um,
0: Superhero team example would be the Avengers. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Brought together by Nick Fury, rainbow six while we're on the Avengers of counterterrorism,
1: Uh, even the blues brothers, you know, <laughs> seeking out the different members, getting them together. Um, And then the other one is what I was just saying, because they're friends. So, you know, if you all grew up together, you're all friends, you all live in the same spot, then a thing can happen. And then it makes sense that everybody, because you're all friends, you all get into it together. It's sort of like a Goonies kind of a situation where the team is already existent and they're already in the spot where the stuff goes down. Um, Now, then there are uh, a few that I haven't really done they they sort of this sort of thing comes about organically once the game is underway but can i guess
0: one and see if it's on the list um all present to witness the same event
1: yeah uh they've been thrown together by fate right where it's like they're they're all in the same place at the same time and that is very much that's what savage tales here does uh like i said the the players are all watching a puppet show and then Shit goes down, and they are all sort of thrown into the middle of it just because that's where they are when it happens. It's happening right in front of them. They have no choice but to get involved. And then the last two that I were that I found were because they're involved for different reasons. Uh, this is the one where you would like work with the PCs, so each character has their own personal stake in the quest. And then because they're involved for the same reason, you know, maybe. Uh, the same villain uh, wreaked havoc upon each of their families or each of their villages, and so they all band together for the common goal of taking out that bad guy, uh, even if they have sort of, even if the characters themselves are disparate. But it's an interesting thing to ponder, like, how do you get people together? And as I said, uh, because Savage Tales does a sort of, like, you know, fate throws them into it thing where they're just, they're in the the same place at the same time. That really made me think like, how do I do it? Usually I'm just like, you're all friends and this happens. Or, uh, like, uh, I've talked before about Rudwilla's stew, uh, the, the great intro adventure that I love to run where everybody has to find the ingredients for a stew to stop a bugbear incursion. That's a great one where you can just be like, you've all been friends And lived in the same town since you were children, and then one day this thing comes to you know this guy comes to town and says, "Hey, I need some some adventurers. Do you have any friends who would be willing to help me out?" Um, But let's here let's get into Savage Tales a bit. As I said, uh,
0: yeah, I'm definitely just to close on like as a closing note. I I mean it's pretty obvious, but I'm very much all about the your mission should you choose to accept it
1: route it's a good one like it, it it really it's a very easy one uh to to sort of use as a method of getting people together
0: Well, and it has a very specific flavor to like what i'm always trying to do pretty much but
1: it's also one that i find like it's sort of harder to refuse right like i don't i don't know my players tend to be very good about taking an adventure hook when the, when one is presented to them. But if it's one of those, like we're all just, we all bear witness to the same event, it's totally possible. Someone would be like, well, I don't want to go anywhere near the danger. I get the hell out of there. And then suddenly it's like, no, no, that's the adventure. You got to come back and do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, Savage Tales starts in the place of pondering in the city of Flume on Keister Island. And the the characters are all sitting in wait to watch a puppet show, and uh, again, something I was trying to articulate—I don't know if I actually managed to on our last episode—was just like the the reason you need to be extremely well versed in low life is the lingo. You know, I was saying it's like it's like goblin talk, and I don't know if I could do it from scratch myself just because of all the, the funny lingo that is used here. So Andy Hop seems to have anticipated that some some uh, bosses, some GMs, uh, might have trouble really capturing the jargon of low life that is, in my opinion, such a part of its personality. Like, that jargon really is the flavor, the, the special sauce in low life. And uh, I think it's important that if you're going to write an adventure... In low life, that you have to include that jargon, but thankfully the campaign provided has loads of flavor text so that you, as the boss, can sound like Andy Hop as you read this. So uh, I'm not going to like read every piece of flavor text, but uh, but I'll read some of it just so you can get a sense of of the sound of it. So the setup. Uh, Initially, everybody is waiting to watch a puppet show. The puppet show starts and uh, some puppets come out and start talking about how much better the world was when the human race was the ruling race on Earth. Uh, They're humanitarians, very pro-human race, and they do a real propagandistic, we love humans, uh, uh, puppet show. However... While the crowd tap their toes and clap along, two small croochs... Uh, not me. That sucks. <laughs> well, the crowd...
0: Oh, I like the part where they had lots of food that the, cro- the croaches could eat. That's a good part.
1: Um, the crowd is getting into it, though, uh, chanting along with the puppets about how the human race is great. Two small croach larvae join arms and dance around in a circle. But without warning, a voice of dissent, a low grumbly voice full of angst and piss, rises from the audience, a lone cream filian, his checkered do-rag adrip with sweat and assorted foulnesses, stands up slowly and shouts, "'Slog! Crap! The human Race were a bunch of vile monsters! They imprisoned my people and forced them into bondage! How can you make light of our suffering? This is off the cob! I piss on the human Race!' and a fight breaks out as the cream fillion unwinds a rope guy. from his shoulder, and his rope has a brick on the end, and he's going to try and bash the puppet theater with the brick.
0: Well, watch out for that brick, but I'm with that guy.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> He's got a brick. And so the the players can choose a side. They can intervene. They can just watch it all happen. But the end result is that... Uh, the the puppeteer is going to get clobbered by the cream fillion or maybe saved but either way the puppeteer is going to like impart something to the players if they if they save the day if they stop the cream fillion the puppeteer says here let me give you one of my special puppets and he gives them one of the puppets as a gift or uh maybe The puppet show is destroyed, and the the puppeteer is killed or is dying, and says, like, wait, here, this is important, and gives them a puppet. Either way, the puppeteer's puppet has some secret clues on it. On the back of one of the eyes is a scratched message that says, they know I know, watch my butt. (laughs) Inside the puppet, they can find a crumpled piece of leather with a garbled message that reads, Orble the Froth Sunrise. And the players are then sort of left to figure out what to do. And this kicks off the big, you know, sort of Indiana Jones Borderlands-esque escapades where they might figure out that the froth is a place that they can go.
0: Uh, I stare at the pup's butt for like three minutes and then I stare at the dead guy's butt for like five (laughs) minutes. (laughs) I'm like, uh, take a smarter croach than me to figure out this one. Actually, I'm illiterate, so never mind. None yeah, you of this can't, made any sense you, you
1: would definitely need some other players uh, to do this one. But, uh, you know, the, the clues take the players to the froth where they meet a worm named Orbel. That's the the Orbel the froth sunrise. So if they meet Orbel the worm at the froth at sunrise, uh, maybe they will get the next piece of the puzzle. Um, they get invited to the funeral of the puppeteer, regardless of whether or not they intervene. You know, maybe just because they saw his final show. But then at the funeral, more cream fillions show up and they start wreaking havoc uh, at the funeral. Uh, I thought you'd like this. Um, the heap notices several cream fillions climbing onto floating mushroom caps on the opposite shore to use as rafts. A cream filling in the water is riding on a trained brocodile, which is currently submerged. Do you know what a brocodile is, Tom?
0: Is it like a crocodile with a broccoli? head? That's
1: exactly what it is. It's a it's a Hell bright yes. green crocodile with a big green afro that makes it look like a piece of broccoli. Um, and so there's a a big fight at the funeral uh, against a, a raiding. Uh, raiding Jemima's Witness cream Creamfilians, uh, one of which is riding a brocodile, uh, and the, the fight is against the funeral of a dead puppeteer humanitarian minister. Um, and so, you know, this whole thing goes down, uh, hopefully the heap is victorious, and somebody notices in the midst of the chaos that the dead puppeteer has a tattoo, and of course the tattoo is another clue to the next piece of the puzzle. So
0: is there a story path offered for Jemima's Witnesses characters, like for siding with the cream fillions?
1: No. Um
0: man, because that's what I'd be leaning towards.
1: The thing is you totally could. Like the thrust of this whole campaign is just leading the players from location to location via clues and puzzles eventually leading them to the primordial soup kitchen so you totally could play it that they side with the cream fillions and they want to you know desecrate the body of the dead puppeteer and in doing so that's when they spy his tattoo right or they assist the cream Creamfillion in destroying the puppet show, and then just in the chaos, you know, out of one of the puppets, falls the one of the coded messages. Uh, you really could play it any way. Mostly because, like, this definitely has it be that the players are just sort of, you know, siding with good and are, are kind of bystanders to these larger conflicts and get involved as they see fit. But I think you could adapt this to have any motivation because so much of it is just like, you know, go to a place, have an encounter, get a clue that leads you to the next place. And when you get there, have an encounter and so on and so forth. Um, like, uh, like, let's see here. There's a on the way back from the funeral, they might get ambushed by some content, contaminants. Um they, oh yeah, the tattoo. Uh, if they do research on the tattoo, they can find out that it was made by a tattoo artist named Finsto the Quill. Uh, and so, you know, using their streetwise uh, smarts, they might be able to track down Finsto the Quill and then get another clue there. The that's the second part of this is is. Uh, looking up the tattoo artist and then being cornered by, you know, even more foes on the way. Um, Actually here, uh, I notice now as I flip through on page 91, motives and mayhem, depending on the political, religious, or personal beliefs of each individual, the characters may need special attention in order to convince them to join in the search for the primordial soup kitchen. So here we go, Tom. Uh, you wanna side with the Jemima's Witnesses? Well, the humanitarians are up to something insidious, and you have to find the soup kitchen before they do! There's your... There's your motivation there. And hey, you're an oldster, so guess what? The soup kitchen is this ancient and historically significant thing which is of great interest to you. So between those two, we have a motivation for an oldster and the motivation for Jemima's Witness to get involved and choose a side in the grand search for the primordial suit I mean, I'm me.
0: not a Jemima's Witness. I just needed to have an in for. Oh, yeah. What were you? You were a Jeezel. Were, were you a Jeezel
1: freak? Uh, or a Boor. Uh, Boor no, Boor I, I think I'm
0: just a I think I'm just a croach supremacist. I think like what the oldster angle No, but what did
1: me? we pick for your holy roller?
0: I think. I think just quote Supremacy. I don't think we got to pick one of the... Um...
1: We didn't pick one of the main ones? I'm trying to remember. But even if we didn't, there's plenty of options here. Uh, even, even personal ones that aren't specific to uh, races or religions. Like, if you're an adventurer, there's bound to be tons of monsters and treasure along the way. If you're a bad guy think of all the power you could get. If you're a good guy, think of all the people you could help. If you're just an idle rich person, well, it's a surefire cure for boredom. <laughs> I like I like that it's like, if you're rich and you well, have everything I, you uh, want, guess what? You might just I be like the money on an expedition. More.
0: I want to go with uh, Borgelzerianism.
1: Well, the soup kitchen holds the answers to a great many questions that must be shared with all of Oif. So each of these adventures just adds uh, another piece of the puzzle. The main opponent in the second one where you're tracking down Finsta the Quill, the tattoo artist, and getting information with him. And there's like a list of all the stuff. You know, uh, Fozzle the Puppeteer came to Finsto six days before he was killed and asked him for the tattoo. He was very impatient and kept looking around like he was paranoid Um, and just like you get all these details about what the tattoo could mean and then uh, when you're on your way out suddenly the hole in the head gang turns up and they're all dirty fighters and they want to take out the the heap they want to take out the party and so once again another encounter more clues they can interrogate the gang that attacks them and it leads to the next spot with the next clue. So,
0: I have a question about um, the way these adventures are written out. When there are skill checks, they uh, set a like a skill and a number. But before that, it says standard pile. Often, what does standard pile mean? Do you know?
1: Standard pile. Um, see, this is this is another illustration of what I've been talking about, where it's like, I got to know the lingo. I don't know it offhand, but I know that that...
0: But this is like mechanical lingo, it seems. When you get a DC presented to you, it goes like... um, Man, where's a good example?
1: What to call people, the party... Yeah. Is the heap at the this game point master. the characters
0: may approach Finsto standard pile smarts d10?
1: Yeah, yeah, let me see here. One thing, I wonder, one if, thing that this I desperate, wonder if it's a savage world thing. One thing that this, oh, yeah, maybe one thing that this desperately needs though is like an index. This thing does not have an index. I'm gonna just do a quick search here. If
0: I had to, if I had to guess. I would say that standard pile means that your dice pool is unmodified for this role. But <clears throat> I don't know.
1: Oh, that's not right. Piles are... Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Let me look here.
0: Uh shortly before that there's uh to find a philosopher and tattoo artist named Finsto the Quill standard pile smart d10 I guess that's the same thing yeah
1: No no exactly. see see here's here's what I'm wondering I'm just trying to find a, a a a skill check that is unrelated to Finsto Yeah okay so you know what it is a pile is the race Finsto oh. is, a, is a pile, a magically animated pile of contaminated goo. And I know this because I, I flipped ahead to page 95 where uh, a couple of Weisenheimers bracket Standard Worms smarts D12 sent by the Keistermeister. Oh. So it's just indicating that his race is a he's just a normal pile.
0: And I bet Standard is his rank.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be it because you start as novice. So he must be Standard. Yeah. So that, I guess that is just telling you sort of the, uh, the, the challenge rating in a way. <laughs> but yeah, this is another case where I would really have to go back to that like actual play session of it and really study up on the interactions. But even in that playthrough, which I will make a point to link to on, uh, on our WordPress, even in that playthrough, I get the impression that it's really just about, like, living in this world. Like, it almost seems like the dice rolling is just kind of a formality to give some structure to, uh, to every encounter, because... I
0: just realized I wouldn't side with the uh, cream fillians because Fossil is a croach, and there's no way I would condo- condone the killing of a croach. Oh, there
1: you go, even though he's a croach in, in promotion of humanitarianism.
0: He's misguided.
1: Um, something that I like about the, uh, just the the way this whole campaign flows as well is that while it does have that overarching structure of like go to a new place, answer a riddle, uh, discover a clue, talk to a person, have an encounter, go to the next one, they still vary it up because the third adventure is an arena fight uh Spoon Day Spoon Day Spoon Day be there be there be there as the mighty Stomposaurus battles the legendary Uli Crepthrall in a no holds barred fight to the death extravaganza next Spoon Day at sunset at the Scrappin Hole. And then they have a nice big uh arena fight against a, like a uh a, a weirdo Stomposaurus <laughs>
0: But I I end up in the arena? How's that happen?
1: Uh let me see here. You meet up with this guy, Grissel Sansanarm, a professional bookkeeper. He's offering eight to one odds on Stomposaurus to win the bout, but in reality, Grissel is a booty hunter out to nab Daddy Hassafras for the villainic. Consortium, a group of evildoers bent on world domination. He's in league with Ulan Crepulos, who has hired him to murder the Heap if they defeated him in one of the previous adventures. Uh, These guys are associated with the Hole in the Head gang that I was telling you about. Gristle knows that the Heap's connection to Hassafras and will use it to his advantage. So basically Gristle is trying to get the Flayers into the ring so that they can be taken out. Not me. The heroes may recognize a few familiar faces in the crowd, including Orble, Dork, Schnozzlewiener, and Finstow the Quill. What about Yort? Yort? Uh, well, he, Yort himself is not around, but everything is in Yorts, so in a way, Yort is all around us.
0: I bet Yort could be there.
1: So yeah, I, I don't think I want to cover too much more of this because I want to let people discover this and, and, you know, I don't want to, don't want to ruin this whole product for everybody just reading out page after page of this adventure, uh, this campaign. But needless to say, all of my concerns about like, you really gotta know the lore. They are assuaged by, by this campaign because, I feel like if I was going to run a game of lowlife, I would just run this and probably after a few adventures of this, I would feel confident enough in my grasp of the world and my ability to sort of to zazzle with the best of them, as they say, uh, that I'd be able to, to write in that that lingo and come up with my own ideas just it's just so immersive man you know it's it's almost like uh it's almost like reading the novel of dune where there are just so many different words that you really have to like absorb almost a new language to make sense of it and to to feel comfortable and understand the the world that it's created
0: yeah what you were saying about like you know starting with the base content that's provided and then being able to branch off and do your own thing. That's been very much my approach to teeth as well, going back to that comparison.
1: moss Any cream filian or related organism that eats this black fungus will begin to shrink rapidly, having in size every round until it is one sixty-fourth of its normal size. Okay. Neat. Um, man, just like... Just endless flavor. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I guess I'll close the book on low life there and bring a new system next time. But uh, I, I suppose maybe this is a good place to like give some final thoughts on this one because I've talked about this one a lot and I feel like of the systems that we have discussed in the RPG Danger Room, this is the one that I feel like this is the most original. It's it's so weird and and different, and uh, I, I hesitate to.
0: I'd say I'd say that of the setting. I'm not sure of the system because the system is just Savage yeah, World, Yeah, yeah, right? that's
1: fair. That's fair. The setting is very unique and interesting. The system itself, uh, it's fine. Um, but as I've said in the past as well, like it's kind of getting to the point where the system for me is also just a formality. Like just t- you know, just pick like Blades in the Dark. And then set it in low life, like we don't need anything too complicated let's just tell it's
0: definitely the way I've been leaning yeah, like, let's very specifically like forged in the dark and whatever
1: let's just tell a crazy story, and the system is just there to give us a framework to make it into a game, but uh the appeal is absolutely like let's just let's go on this adventure together and create something really wild um and uh so yeah, I give. Low Life a big thumbs up. Savage Worlds, I'd probably just have to play like the base Savage Worlds game to really get a handle on it. It seems fine. Um, but like this is this is also one where I want to, I'm just looking at a digital copy of the source book. I, I kind of want to get a, a hard copy of this if I can find it anywhere just for the awesome product that it is, the way it's assembled, all these amazing illustrations. And... Even if it doesn't provide you with a, a top to bottom product where you could just like run a game without anything else, I do think you need like the Savage Worlds base source book to really be able to run Low Life. Um, but that aside, just like as a product, it's super cool. And uh, if you have a knowledge of Savage Worlds, Low Life gives you at least everything you need to run one long, awesome campaign with a lot of really wild detail. Another thing I love about all these illustrations in the like the campaign, they really give you all the illustrations. So you'll never be hunting for a picture of like the map or the character that you want to include. I really like that, too.
0: I uh, if I got a physical copy of this, I would really be disappointed if the cover was not textured.
1: Oh, yeah, it really should be a weird kind of like knobbly surface to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, that'd be great.
0: Like the old Goblin's book.
1: And this campaign just goes on and on. Man, it is uh, is a significant chunk of this source book.
0: Same for the World Book and Teeth. Do you have anything else for us, McGill? I
1: don't, Tom. I think that's all.
0: Alright, well then, uh, this has been, uh, we've been having some long episodes lately, so I'm glad we got a a bit of a shorter one in here. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes, uh, or just, you know, follow us. Check us out on Facebook, Compare and Campaign on Facebook. And if you want to check out our supplemental materials and show notes, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Um... Who knows what McGill's bringing next time? Not me.
1: See you at the Keister of God.
0: Take care, everybody.